Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I um, hope you guys are well. I mentioned first service, too. I've had a great morning because of melting snow. It's, been, uh, it's one of the things that imparts grace to my soul. There's Christ, and then there's melting snow. Actually, Jesus, family, and melting snow, I should say. I probably also offended someone when I said that and forgot someone when I, you know, all that. But in terms of things that do good for my soul, melting snow is up there. Um, but anyway, uh, we're going to dive right in today. A lot to talk about in Matthew. So if you're joining us for the first time today, you're coming, at, uh, or coming here at the end of a two-year series. We've been in Matthew for about two years now. Next month, actually, it'll be uh, two years plus a couple of weeks. We'll wrap this up in a few weeks here. But we're in this last section on the passion or suffering of the Christ, and it's really the climax of Matthew, the climax of, of the Bible, all of history. As you've been, a lot of you have been here for the last two years, you've seen that we've been building towards this moment because Jesus has been building towards this moment for this long. All throughout the, the gospel accounts, he's been talking about this, he's been predicting it, he's been prophesying about it, he's been speaking in parables in light of it, he's been healing to anticipate it, and all kinds of things, and especially these last few chapters, he's been really ramping up the fact that he came into the world to die on a cross for sinners. And so at this point in the narrative then, he's been tried, he's been scourged, and now crucified. And last week, uh, we talked about the first part of his crucifixion. So he was already on the cross uh, last week, you know, from our kind of vantage point here, sermon-wise. We talked about how he's bearing our sin, and particularly our derision of him. So that was a big angle last week to talk about how the core element of sin is not just doing this and avoiding this, though there's, there's something to that. The core element of sin is dethroning Christ and committing spiritual treason against him. In any way living, whether it's very aggressive or very passive, in any way living as though he's just not that important, or in a very uh, antagonistic, atheistic type uh, way as well. That could be the case and maybe was the case for many of you or even is. Regardless, in any way, if, we, when, if and when we live, because we all do, are born into this as though God is not as important as we are, or just disbelief or we ridicule his rule. That is the core element of sin. That we see Jesus starting to bear on the cross. It's not, he's not just bearing sin in a, in a broad sense of the word, but in a very pointed sense, he's bearing the fact that we hate him. He's bearing the fact that we're antagonistic towards him. He's bearing the fact that we've committed treason. We've, we're being a part of the inner circle of the greatest coup ever staged against the God of the universe. And it's serious stuff. And this is the thing, this is why the cross, in part, is so brutal and bloody and visceral and torturous, is because sin is that, that bad. So that's how it began last week, and this week we're going to look at some more of his final moments. So this is the death of Christ week. Last week was the crucifixion, the beginning. This week is the, the final moments of his life, his final words, and some other things. And next week will be his burial move on to resurrection, post-resurrection commissioning. So I think it's just three weeks after this, and we're going to finish, believe it or not. It's amazing. So we'll finish in a few weeks. Uh, but great passage here and talking about the moment uh, God died for sinners. What happens? Uh, there's some things Jesus says, some post-death ripple effects, I call them, as uh, the Bible will describe here in a minute, that both declare and demonstrate uh, gospel truth. So you might think right off the bat, well, can God die? And in one sense, we'll know. But if he becomes a man, then he can. If he becomes a human being, then he can, because he's, human beings die. He can ex- at least experience death in that sense of the words. The fact that Jesus is not just a man, but he's the Son of God, God in flesh, uh, tells us then we can affirm that God, it was actually God dying in our place on a cross 2,000 years ago. Talk more about that as, as the morning goes on. 27, 45 to 56 is today's passage. If you want to open up in your Bibles, that'd be great. You have an insert, I think, in your uh, folders there, and this will be on screen as well. Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus, this is about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep 
were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right, so three angles on this today. Uh, like I mentioned before, two of these angles will be Jesus' last words. So he has a couple of main things he says, the moments before his death. We'll unpack that. And the, the third angle will be these uh, ripple effects. So there, there's a lot of things that are listed out here, as we just read, that occur at the moment of his death. Physically to the earth, physically to things like the temple in Jerusalem, and physically to people like the centurion. And we'll talk about what that means for us as well, what we can glean truth-wise from that uh, today as well. So we'll start with the first angle, which at the top of the passage uh, begins in verse 46 here. Uh, second verse actually from the top. There was darkness from noon to 3 p.m. inexplicably. In the ninth hour, around 3 p.m., right before he dies, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. It's Aramaic and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 22:1 in the Old Testament, the Psalm of David, and I talked about this last week a little bit as well. He's continuing to link his current state of suffering with King David's in the Old Testament, because King David was the first one to say this. So in quoting this, he's basically saying, I am a David-like king. I also, like David, suffered greatly and then took the throne. I am suffering here on an even higher level. I, I am the ultimate David, the ultimate true and better suffering king who is bringing a kingdom into the world so this is why it's important to go back and do the hard work of understanding david and what his life was like as a suffering king so that we might see that last piece as significant here he's not just a suffering king but he's a suffering king who brings about a kingdom that benefits people it was the par excellence kingdom of old testament times there was no greater kingdom for israel in the old testament than the one that david and his son solomon to a degree but especially david had really brought into history by being that, war, that king of war and fighting to bring that peace uh, to his people and protection and blessing and all of that. God through him. So in, the, in a similar sense, this is what Jesus is doing. He's reigning on the cross. It doesn't look like rain, but he is reigning. He's destroying our enemies of sin. He's pushing back death, that cousin enemy of sin. And he's reigning here for us, bringing a kingdom into the world that will benefit people who take refuge in him. It's the ultimate David. So now, Moving on then, we talked last week, as I said before, about this widespread rejection and derision that Christ was receiving from people, which we defined, again, as the core element of sin. But another layer to this, and what's adding to Christ's emotional suffering here, is that even his heavenly Father, God the Father, he's God the Son, God the Father is turning his face away. Which we cannot see as sin, of course, like we did last week in reference to people, because God is the essence of good. And the Bible says he cannot sin. He cannot lie. But rather, we have to see that it's somehow a part of what's happening on the cross. We learn more about the mission of Christ here in what Jesus is saying and what it's referential to, uh, in addition to other things, of course, as well. But his statement tells us a ton. And it has to do with our particular sin condition. So we talk about sins like, kind of like last week, very broadly sometimes and very specifically. The Bible does both. It's important to do both. And here we're seeing this too. On one level, generally, sins being laid on Jesus. He is, as it says elsewhere, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God who's substituting himself for us. He's dying so that we don't have to. His blood cleanses. All of that good stuff. It's important. But also on top of that, what we need to understand is that Jesus is bearing not just our sins, but the ultimate punishment for sin, which is separation from God. So Jesus is bearing not just our sins, but ultimately what sin leads to, which we kind of experience in this life a little bit, but not to the full measure of what hell will be like. And 1 Thessalonians 1.9 gets at this. This is not going to be a sermon on hell because it goes too long, but I will say uh, this, that if you want to understand what hell is like, look at the cross. Because if Jesus is taking on what we deserve, and we deserve hell, then we should be able to look at the cross and see what it's like. Right? or the circumstances surrounding the cross and see what it's like. And in fact, we do. The Bible says elsewhere that hell is a dark place. It's full of torment. 
and it's full of separation from God. And we're seeing all, all of those here, right? Darkness, separation from God, and physical torment. He's taking on hell for us. First Thess 1.9 says, Those who don't believe or don't, who don't ultimately believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, speaking of the future, will suffer eternal destruction, this is the key, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. There's no more hellish existence than to not be where God is. And that's ultimately what, God, what Jesus is bringing on himself and absorbing willingly in love for us as part of the plan that God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit enacted in history that this moment would take place to undo banishment. Because again, this is, what we, this is what we deserve. We deserve, and he's bearing, eternal hellish banishment from God that, that we deserve. And we kind of already experienced, but because he's bearing it and atoning for it, he's going to undo it as well. So that's one piece to this that I want to, I want to start there, but add a layer to it that might seem, at least for some of you, uh, paradoxical. And I think it is. I feel that uh, still when I think about it in these terms. We have this very hard-to-understand idea of God the Father giving his Son over unto death, and, but the Son willingly, Jesus willingly walking to the cross and going. We clearly see that in the gospel. He's not being dragged there. He's going willingly out, out of obedience to God and love for us, the people he's going to save so that's a piece. I want us to get that and feel that, that we're being saved from banishment, but also this added layer of simultaneously, we're, we're learning here and we're seeing a ton about the love of God as well. We can't be exposed to this type of generosity, this type of sacrificial love, biblically speaking, and not be confronted with love as well. And Aaron read a verse earlier this morning from 1 John 4. It talked about that, how love, the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ are inextricably connected. It's something that we have to do sometimes the hard work of feeling, or it will just be dogma. It will be facts, but it won't be personal love that we experience. One place I want to take you back to really quick, and we could, again, a whole sermon here, but we're not going to talk about it entirely, but at least uh, glean something from is Genesis 22, first book of the Bible. It's a narrative, a story of when God uh, calls this one man named Abraham away from his old life and begins to covenant with him. Uh, for the sake of blessing the whole world. And we're on the tail end of that now in this part of history, but he's the first Hebrew, the first Israelite. Israel comes through him, ultimately Christ. But at one point in their early relationship, God asks Abraham, uh, who is this first Hebrew, to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham ends up obeying, and it's important to note here that Isaac is a willing sacrifice as well, because he's likely late teens or early 20s when he's being sacrificed. He's not a child. So he's willingly lying down. He's willingly giving his life. All of that, that's an important thing too, but another sermon. Can't go there. like to. We can't do that. But to understand that the, the dynamic here between the two is uh, emotional and, and intense. Abraham is brokenhearted, uh, but Isaac's willing nonetheless, also being obedient. Abraham, as he picks up the knife to kill his son, God stops his hand. And he says this, Don't kill him, for now I know that you fear and love God. It's God speaking to Abraham. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Isn't that amazing? There's a third party involved here, in other words. It's not just Abraham sacrificing or almost sacrificing Isaac, but God's involved. Because God says, now I see that within this moment, there's a picture of and a demonstration of what you think about me. The fact that you would not withhold your only son to be obedient to me out of fear and love, fear in a reverent kind of way and love for me, says everything about your heart. So as we bring this idea into the New Testament, which we should, it's a picture of latter realities, then we can make the same type of affirmation that God does to Abraham. There's a third party here too, right? It's us. It's not just God and Jesus, God giving his son. It's not just the interaction between those two. It's us as well, the beneficiaries. So we can say, See, we can point to it and say, see, now we know how much God loves us because of this right here. Now we know. This is how we know the extent of his love that he gave his son for you and me. Personally, this actually happened in history. God actually did this. And we can know his love. He can, we can say God loves us, and God can say he loves us, and that's fantastic. The Bible is all the time. It's good. We can also get demonstratively and narratively this picture and this greater idea of the extent to which his crazy love goes to save people. Isn't it amazing? It's almost incomprehensible. 
Romans 8.32, though, gets at this. Uh, same language used in Genesis 22, that's, and that's the point. Uh, Paul is pointing back to it with this language. He's saying, He, God, who did not spare or withhold his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So you see the two layers here. Saved from banishment, saved from hell, saved from darkness, saved from not being where God is anymore. He's ended that. The Father turns his face away. Banishment's being experienced for us. But through that, this father-son thing going on here within the triune Godhead tells us a ton about the love of God, according to scriptures, that we have to feel. Guys, I'm telling you, by, by, by theology, but also by experience, you will never understand the love of God if we just remain in the dogmatic area, remain in the doctrinal, fact-based area. If we don't move past it, not neglecting it, of course, but jumping off it into praxis or applying this to our heart in the way that we think. If we don't think about it in personal terms, that the God of the universe gave his son for me. He didn't withhold him. He gave him up. So that we can look at it and say, see, now I know. I thought I heard about this concept before. Someone told me that a long time ago, but now I know when I look at the cross that God cares about me. He loves me that much. I mean, because none of us, we've experienced love, hopefully, you've experienced love in this world to some degree. Maybe some of you just really haven't. Most of us have, but none of us have experienced on this level. Who has given up their child for you? Or who has sacrificed at least comparatively on this high of level? No one. And the fact that God of the universe has done this for us just heightens it. This is what he's like. And I think it's okay, too. I want to give you guys, myself, fresh permission here to not fully understand this. You don't have to fully get it. You don't have to fully feel it. That's okay. I was talking to a guy uh, last week, uh, right up here, actually, who was just saying, I told him that God loved him. And his response was, I don't know why. I just can't understand that. I don't know why he'd love someone like me. And I... And I kind of reaffirmed and just thought in my own mind, I understand that. I understand that you don't, you don't get the love. This is crazy love. Who can under fully comprehend this, right? But wouldn't it make sense that the God of the universe that we can't comprehend in our minds would have a love that's incomprehensible at the same time? And it is. And so it's okay. Bask in how much is revealed and be okay in the mystery and just say, this happened in the world and God is saying, I love you. Through giving his son, and Jesus being that Isaac-like willing sacrifice, laying his life down for us. It's kind of this new Abraham-Isaac duo in God the Father and God the Son going to work uh, to save the world from its sin. Peter mentioned this, it's costly, right? Love costs something. It cost God his son. It cost God something. And we experience this in marriage. In just any relationship, you guys have d- uh, deep friendships, you can experience there too, no doubt, in marriage as well, maybe in a heightened sense. But when you love someone, you lose a part of yourself. You say, you're more important than me. That's the essence of love. If you say and, and live out the idea that you're more important, I'm putting your needs first, I'm going to lay down my ambitions and plans and dreams and desires to purchase big things or whatever it is so that I can focus on you and, and champion your needs. When you do that, that's the essence of love. It's, it's an action, not primarily a feeling, though it is that, but it's an action to serve. It's an action to put someone first. That's costly. And so with, with this idea of what love really is, it's not really about us loving God. It's about God loving us and enacting that costly love in the world through the generosity of, of the gospel and giving his son, not withholding his son. It's amazing. But giving, us, giving him up for us all. See, it's for us. It did something. All this is just history. It's actually meaningless. If we don't have that for us all idea in Romans 8, this means basically nothing. It's at best an interesting story. It's a chapter in a history book. But that's it. And so we have to go past that like the Bible does because God says this. I want you to see my love and I want you to know that my love has actually pulled you back from something. It's redeemed you. I've substituted myself for you. I'm your king. Come into the walls of my kingdom and rest forever in my saving love. All right, let's move on to uh, the second thing here, which is Jesus' actual final, final words. I know we just talked about final words, but these are like final, final words here now. In verse 50, 
it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Uh, Matthew does not tell us what the last cry was. But we know from another gospel, the gospel of John in the New Testament, that his last cry was, it is finished. From John 19, John 19.30. Uh, Peter said that to you before the last song. That's what he says. So his last cry is, it is finished. And so we have to ask the, the same question we do about any detail and narrative, which I, I love narrative for this reason, because it's just such a cool angle on the same old gospel truth that we might be more familiar with elsewhere in kind of a statement format. Regardless, why does he say this? Why are these his last words and not something else? And it's actually, it's interesting, it would have been very uncommon too for a, a scourged, and, and Peter talked about this a couple weeks ago with his uh, sermon on um, uh, Barabbas, and I think you talked about crucifixion a bit there as well if you guys were here for that, but crucifixion, and before that, the scourging idea, to be scourged or whipped in the back with pieces of bone and whips would have been such a torturous thing. A lot of people died before they went to the cross. That was kind of a pre-cross torture. A lot of people died right there because the, the bones and the whips would have exposed your organs. It went so deep in back, in your back. And so people would have just died right there. Jesus didn't. He was later nailed to a tree. And when you're crucified, what crucifixion was, it was we get our word excruciating from it. The Romans didn't invent it, but it said historically that they perfected it in how they crucified people. But what a crucified person would have gone through, essentially, is they would have slowly died of asphyxiation over about a six to nine hour period of time. Now, sometimes less, sometimes more, but basically what they had to do was push up on their feet, which had a nail through them, push up to open up their airways to get air, then they collapsed in exhaustion. And they kept doing that over and over and over again. They could have bled out, they could have, that could have happened too, but a lot of times it was just slow, slow, painful, torturous asphyxiation death. And that's what's happening to Jesus here over a six-hour period of time. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. is the part of day on that Good Friday when he was being crucified and when he died at 3, at 3 p.m. So it's, uh, it would have been very, and I mention this because it would have been very uncommon for a scourged, crucified for six hours, on the cusp of death individual, to have the strength to talk at all, much less shout. And he shouts this. It is finished. He cries out loudly, not just the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, but it is finished. It's a cry. It's a rallying cry at the end of his life. And so it tells us that it was a special, divinely enabled proclamation about something very important. But again, the question is, what do these words tell us? It tells us in a very broad sense, right, that he's been working. You can't finish something you don't start. Right? You don't, you, 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 it implies that you've been working to accomplish something and you actually get to a point where it's done. It's finished. That's the obvious, right? But to finish something, then, is to imply that. And what he started here, as Peter was saying earlier as well, that uh, it's, it was more than the beginning of his crucifixion. He's not just saying, my suffering's finished. He's certainly not saying, I'm finished, I lost. Certainly not saying that. Nor is he saying, my suffering's over. He's, it's more wide in scope. He's saying, my saving work, what I came in the world to accomplish, is finished. And we know he's got more in his mind, too, than just the crucifixion, uh, though that's the capstone of it, because back in John 5, 17, he talks about working. There's a reason, other reasons why he's using this language in John 5, but another day we'll talk about that maybe when we're in John 5. But he says, my father is working until now and I am working. So God has been working, he's working through me. I've been doing something. I've been working to accomplish something in the world. And it's starting to take shape through my teachings and my healings and my miracles, my pushing back of demons and strong winds and seas and all of that. But it's finally taking full shape on the cross because here it's sort of actually finished the reason for why I've came into the world. One of my favorite scenes too, if you guys have seen the Passion of the Christ, is, uh, is this moment where Christ is carrying his cross. And it's actually an extra biblical idea. It's not in the gospel accounts, but it's actually very uh, true to the scriptures as well, that uh, Gibson, I guess, or whoever he consulted to put that in there was, I think, right to do. And that because we get these words from Christ in Revelation 21, in that when he, he's carrying his cross and he gets to a point where he kind of collapses, looks to the side and sees his mother, and he says, Behold, mother, I'm making all things new. Look what I'm doing. I'm making everything new. I'm uncursing everything. I'm bringing everything up from the ashes. This is how I'm doing it. I'm suffering. I'm dying. Somehow wrapped up in what I'm doing here, this would have been Mary's perspective, of course, but not connecting the dots, but somehow this is recreating, recreating the earth. 
So Revelation 21 then says, Jesus speaking, Behold, I'm making all things new. And afterwards, the same three words that we see in John 19, it is, it is finished. It's done. So this idea of God finishing something is very closely linked with him working specifically at creation and in a creative kind of manner. Uh, per Revelation 21, but also as I don't have up here, Genesis 2, the very beginning of the Bible when God is making physically all things out of nothing, it says he worked for six days and he finished his work. That word in Genesis 2, 2 is used. Same word, finished, and he rested. So it's a creative idea. To say, for Jesus to say it's finished is not just to say I've finished my work, though it's certainly the nucleus of it. It's to say I am finishing remaking the world. I'm finishing undoing the curse. I'm finishing a new work of God in the world to, to bring things to life that just, or things into being that just weren't are before, but also things to life that were dead before. He's remaking everything. And the key here, I think, is the idea, as we've said, is it's done on the cross. The cross is that means. And I want to, these are great words, practically speaking, too. There's, there, again, there's the, the theology and the practice. They're, they should be inextricable. There's the what's true and what we do with it, how we apply this to our life. These are great words, not the only words, uh, but the great words to speak over your life when you doubt or entertain lies about salvation or about God. So, for example, three of maybe big ones, but there are many more. And we think, well, Jesus, forgive me of my future sins as well. We need to stop, read John 19.30 and say, of course he will, because he said it's finished. It's done. So, so, so we know this, that, that God's saving work at work in the world was actually accomplished there 2,000 years ago. There's no more sacrifice, right? The battle's over. It's done. He's pushed back my sin in that regard. Or the second thing is, can I lose my salvation? Absolutely not. It's finished. It's done. The invitation here is to stop trying to unfinish what God has said finished. Don't label it what God hasn't. It's done. He loves us that much, and his work is that, that decisive. He's not saying, it's kind of finished, and I want you to kind of finish it for me. Though there's things that we do to help spread the kingdom, no doubt. In one sense, he's coming back again. So in that sense, we still have something to look forward to. No doubt. We have to take his words at face value, and very seriously here, theologically, it's done. The work of saving people from their sins is finished. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more work of God in the world that will add to that. There's no, there's no second Christ. There's no second sacrifice. It actually was done there as we watch it. Third thing is, is there anything else I have to do to be saved? Again, same question, but we have to stop and say, no, it's finished. There's nothing else to be done. We can't add to his grace. Other religions do say, not finished yet. This is actually one of the things that distinguishes Christianity, and there are many, from other religions. Other religions say effectively in their teachings that things aren't done yet. We can't be sure if we're going to finish the race yet. It's not finished, so add to whatever God or whatever you believe in what he's doing in the world. But Jesus says distinctly, it's finished. We rally around and worship a God who said it is finished 2,000 years ago. And he says this to us afresh, I have finished the work of your salvation for you. There's nothing less for us to do short of considering his words and believing. When someone says it's done, we don't say, no, not really especially when it's God. Nothing short of us to do other than consider this and believe and to trust. All right, third, uh, third category here, which moves on from Jesus' final words because he's just died. to Now these initial ripple effects uh, to the death of Christ, and there are four. I'll go through these relatively quickly, some more quicker than uh, others, but basically... We have to see here that this is another way to say the gospel uh, in, in this uh, fourfold manner. We've already talked about two of them. It's the same idea, but in a different, uh, more creative, theologically nuanced way. Verse 51. Jesus takes his last breath, and then immediately, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Immediately. So if you don't know what the curtain is, uh, the curtain was a temple, Old Testament temple furnishing that existed in Old Testament times and in Jesus' day, that separated this inner holy sanctuary place where God especially dwelt. He's everywhere, but he chose to especially dwell there and the rest of the temple and affected the rest of the world. 
So the curtain was this dividing point between where God was and everybody else, everything else. Nothing could enter. And and no one could go into this holy place in Old Testament times and even in Jesus' day except the high priest but once a year to atone for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. It's a big festival for the Jewish people. So on that day, the high priest went in, but only that one time, and he had to follow certain rules or else he would die, couldn't touch certain things. All he would do is sprinkle animals' blood on this mercy seat, this capstone gold piece on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Sprinkle blood on it, and God said, when I see that blood, I will, I will forgive your sins. I will, I will atone for it through that act, this high priestly act of bringing blood into God's presence. Well, that in itself is full of Christ, right? But we're not talking about that today. So back up here, talk about the curtain. The curtain that divided the world from God's presence at the moment of Jesus' death. Not two hours before, not two days before, not five days after. At the moment of Christ's death, it's torn in two. Why? Because sin is dealt with. There's no more barrier between us and him. In Old Testament times, you couldn't enter because you were impure and unclean and unholy like we all are in our sin. We could not go into his presence or we would die. And we see that happen, actually, multiple times in the Old Testament narratives. People, in their pride, touch things they shouldn't or enter places they shouldn't, thinking they're, they're pretty good people, pretty strong, and they, and they die. But now, through Christ, and his atoning work for us on the cross, it's torn right in two. Because of what he has done, we can enter his presence freely. Another cool thing about um, the curtain in Exodus 26 in the Old Testament, when God is speaking to Moses about the temple furnishings and what they should look like. God gets very particular about what should be inside and what things should look like. So this is not a curtain that was just a tall purple or blue curtain or something like that. It had colors to it, but design-wise, it had something more on it as well. Exodus 26, this is not 1 to 6. I don't know why I said 1 to 6. It's one of those verses, but not all those. Anyway, he says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread, this is the key. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. I kind of like that as an artist, first of all, that God is artistic, interested in artistic things. Pretty cool. Anyway, but aside from that, what does he put on the, what does he put on the curtains? Pictures of cherubim. Cherubim are angelic beings that remind us of something earlier in the story, if you guys remember. Where did they come up earlier in the narrative? Cherubim. At the garden. Exactly, right? So when God excommunicates or pushes Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 because they rebelled against him, because they sought to be their own gods, because they sinned against him, he put two cherubim at the entrance of the garden on the east side to guard the way back to the tree of life, it says. So what Adam and Eve would be thinking, if you think about this, as they were pushed out of the garden in their sin, in their shame, they'd look back and they'd see cherubim between themselves and God, the garden of God's presence. So what God wanted in the temple were every day for the Jews to see more cherubim and to be reminded of that event and to basically see another garden-like image. There's other garden images too in the temple that we're not going to go into today. God basically wanted the temple to be kind of Garden of Eden-like, but only typical of it, not the final, not the final manifestation because there's still separation. God's saying, come close and worship, but stay away. You're not clean. You're in your sin. You will die if you're where I am. Stay behind the curtain except the high priest, but once a year. So at the moment of Jesus' death, he brings to an end that entire system of religion. Done, right? No more need for animal sacrifice, no more need for the priesthood, no more need for the temple, none of that, because it's, it's ripped in half, right? Done, enter freely. And this is where the, the theology behind what, what this is and the praxis of it, it starts to become hopefully more seen and more practiced is, We can have this idea, but what do we do with it? Jesus has ended the cherubim, ended the curtain. He's inviting us back into the garden of his presence. But do we enact it? Do we live that way? The Bible says in Hebrews, because of this kind of truth, enter God's presence boldly and pray. Ask him for things. Worship. Don't live in fear anymore. Uh, Don't be full of shame because God has taken your shame as well. You're perfectly clean. Hang out with him. Walk with him like Adam did in the cool of the day, if you remember that in Genesis 3, where there's, there's no law, there's, no, there's none of that, there's just God and people, and it's good that God is there, and that's, that's it, that's it. God is just there. See, God is our salvation. Jesus brings us into his own presence, and that's where the, the antithesis of hell is. We're, we're now with God, right? Keep in mind how this juxtaposes then with what we just talked about. Jesus, Jesus absorbs, takes on banishment, 
So now, and the curtain is torn so that now we can experience the opposite of banishment. Now we're right where God is. No more barrier, and it's all given. None of it's earned. Verses 51 and 52, then I'll move on, say, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. So on one level here, similar to how it said earlier that it became dark, over the land, the sun went out from 12 to 3 p.m. inexplicably. It shouldn't surprise us that something physically cataclysmic and miraculous happens to the earth and the heavens, things that God has made for his purposes, at the precise moment the Son of God takes his last breath. And that's what happens. The sun goes out and a huge earthquake occurs. On another level, though, it gets more specific, right? An earthquake occurs and what happens specifically? It's a key detail. The tombs were opened. So have in mind, this wouldn't happen the same way today with how we bury people, but in that day, they were cave-like, rock-entranced tombs. And so if an earthquake to occur, the doors of the tombs literally would, would open because they'd crumble down or just move, and the tombs would be, <clears throat> would be open. So this is like literally, literally happening. Tombs are literally opening because they're being broken uh, or moved. So what does this tell us? Demonstratively, death is beginning to lose its grip. Isn't that cool? We're at the moment of Christ's death. That's this death in the doorway between dead people and, and the, the, the alive world are coming down. And then it actually caps with verse 53. And many bodies of the saints, this is the third thing, who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And that's one of those verses for me in Matthew, and really the whole of the scriptures, that I... For the life of me, I can't understand why Matthew just stops here. doesn't keep explaining this. I'm like, this would be a good place to keep writing. Uh, a couple more paragraphs, please. But he just kind of keeps going. And all that happened, you know, I, it's a couple people that have been dead for a few hundred years woke up and, and uh, their bodies somehow miraculously remade. They walked around Jerusalem for a while, got a beer, caught a late movie. Like, what? You know, that's, that's it? That's all you're going to give us? But, but it happened. But here, here's the thing. Note this happened, this is a key phrase in verse 53, after his resurrection. So this is actually not right at the moment of his death apparently, but three days later when he rose. What that tells us is it's two-staged. Jesus' death broke open the tombs, began to push back death because sin was atoned for, right? I mean, picture, picture like a, head, a river idea with a headwaters and a river that gets bigger at the base. Sin's up here at the headwaters and death is down here. Sin leads to death, biblically speaking. Step back in the garden, right? Adam and Eve sin, and later they die. Immediately spiritually they die, but later they physically die. So when Jesus cuts off the headwaters, when you cut off, put a dam right here, eventually this dries up as well, right? It's two-staged. Sin's being dealt with. It's gone. It's absorbed into the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's gone. It's erased, forgotten. So you'd expect then that later, to follow with what the Bible teaches about the relationship between sin and death, that death would also dry up that tombs would be, in fact, even literally opened up and that people would walk out. So it's two-staged. Jesus' death broke open the tombs. His resurrection just couldn't help but wake up a few people with him. It was that powerful. Is that awesome? It's participatory. This is unique as well because we know earlier in the story, Jesus raises people from the dead, right? In the Old Testament, there's, there's uh, accounts of people raising from the dead as well. God raised people from the dead. But this is the only time in history where someone is raised and other people are pulled with that resurrection. They're pulled out of their tombs with this forerunner, this harbinger that never happens. So the earlier resurrections are lesser. This is greater. This does something to us. It affects us. You see how it's different? The Bible calls this a first fruits idea as well in 1 Corinthians 15, how Christ's resurrection is the first kind of harvesting agrarian metaphor. It's the first initial harvest that tells us more harvest is coming. It's the first resurrection that tells us more resurrections are coming. And we're actually already seeing it here in a figurative, very physical, historical, but figurative kind of way. It tells us more of this is coming. Because Jesus died on the cross, because he rose again, your resurrection's guaranteed if you believe. He's carrying you, he's like sucking you, like the current behind a boat or something. He's sucking you out of your tombs with him when he's raised. If you have faith in him, your bodily, 
Not a figurative kind of in heaven with harps disembodied. None of that. It's not biblical. Your bodily resurrection is guaranteed. Just like these are actual people who lived in actual bodies that were remade. Just like Jesus' was an actual body that was brought. It wasn't a ghost, apparition, none of that. It was actual body. Your body's right here. This is what you'll look like eternally, but in a glorified sense. Because no more death or pain or sickness or imperfection. These bodies will be remade. This body, if you believe. There's a lot of hope in that, guys. Especially for those of you that have lost people and friends. That, that you stare at their gravestone and you think, death seems like it's winning. But we know in Christ it hasn't. Because you know that God will bring those people right up out of that ground and they'll walk on this earth in a new glorified manner forever and ever and ever with Christ in person. That's the Christian hope. It's not only heaven, it's a new earth where God is with us, walking among us like he did with Adam and Eve thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. He's making it possible. That's the hope we have. Fourth, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And this might seem like uh, the, the least miraculous in some ways of the four things we just talked about, but I think in, in some ways it's the most miraculous. It's the, it's the best of the four. And that is, note the progression here. A Gentile, non-Jewish soldier who just helped crucify Jesus watches Jesus die, so Jesus' death occurs. Third, he sees what took place. He hears his last words. He sees the earthquake. He sees the sun go out from noon to three. No one can explain it. Then four, after his death, this is the key part here, he changes his mind about Jesus and professes him the Son of God. Now, is this actual conversion? Does he connect all the dots here? Probably not. But I'd like to think that he does later, later on, when the church is born and the gospel starts to run in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, on all of that to the ends of the earth. I'd like to think that, but either way, narratively, like the other ripple effects that we just talked about, what does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection are accomplishing something, making God haters, people very, very distant from God, God worshipers. It's a centurion. It's a Gentile. It's a guy not even looking for God. It's a guy who helped crucify Jesus, who now is saying, truly this is the Son of God. He's worshiping. What came in between those two events? What brought the person from here to here? Well, what happened? Jesus died. See what it's doing? It's accomplishing conversions. It's making possible hard-heartedness to get over here to soft-heartedness. Without this event, narratively speaking, chronologically, we wouldn't have the latter thing. There'd be, no, there'd be no final pronunciation of it is finished. There'd be no final pronunciation of, my God, why have you forsaken me? There'd be no miraculous strength to scream at the end of his six-hour crucifixion. There'd be no darkness or earthquake. There'd be no intent of God. None of it. It'd just be history. But see, what comes in between these two things is the death of Jesus. It actually enables people to come out of those tombs. It enables new life. It enables people to get back into the Garden of Eden, past the cherubim. No more cherubim, praise be to God. No more. Just us and God perfectly, as Revelation says, in the, not just a garden, but a garden city uh, forever and ever and ever. So it's a hint then that more things like this are coming. This would not be possible without his death. And, and so we have a hint in the story. And we see this play out later in the, the narratives of Acts and things like that in the New Testament that this is just, the, just, just a harbinger of a greater reality of conversion coming later. But it only happens because God died for us. That's the only way people are saved uh, from their sins. The only way they actually start to worship God, not hate him anymore. So to begin to wrap up here, uh, let me recap what we've learned today. And there are actually more things than this going on here, but I think these are the mountaintop things that we learned about the cross, about the mission of God, the plan of God to send his son into the world ultimately be a substitute for us and dying for our sins. And as I read this, I want to encourage you guys, wherever you are spiritually, a lot of you have already received these things, you're aware of them. I'm guessing all of you, though, have been reminded of something today that you've forgotten to a degree. I know I did this week. Uh, some of you aren't Christians yet. Either place, though, spiritually speaking, hear this as God saying, this is my gift to you. N note how we don't manufacture these things. It's given and received. This is the Christian praxis idea of applying the theology into the way we think and live. 
And so we'll come back to that too in a second. But here are the, here are the eight things. He's faced banishment Jesus has from God for you. He's taken on hell for you. He's finished the work of salvation for you at his death. It's finished. It's done forever and ever and ever. He's made a way of access to God for all people, all who believe, and you enter that curtain. He opened up our tomb, spiritually speaking now and literally in the future. He gave the promise of participatory resurrection. He makes us God-haters into God-worshippers. And in all these things, he shows us his love. He gave his son for us. In verse 55, uh, it talks about these women who are looking on from a distance and who had followed Jesus from Galilee. And I love this picture. I want to end with this image and encourage you guys narratively to see how these women are just watching. They're not at the cross helping Jesus to die. They're not saying, I knew this was going to happen. They're not there as very righteous people. They're watching from a distance. See how they're not adding anything here? They're simply looking at God doing something in the world. And they're believing. They followed him to the city from Galilee, the northern region. They followed him there. And now they're just watching it happen. That's what it means to be a Christian, guys. And you might think, well, what about good works? Good works follow. It's not the bullseye. The bullseye, biblically, is, is this. This is the bullseye. We've got to keep it the bullseye or we cease to be believers. We cease to be Christian. Or think, at least think Christian. We lose our salvation necessarily, but we, we start, start thinking in an unchristian manner. When we, when we replace the bullseye with other things. Jesus, bloodied on a cross, God in flesh, dying for sinners like us. It, that, that's why the early Christians wore crosses. We wear crosses today, right? We wear a form of execution around our necks. And we get tattooed. And we, In the early church, too, the cross was, was a symbol of Christianity, and the Romans ridiculed them for it. Because it's like their God is... I mean, the crucifix, too, was this taboo torturous, just you couldn't even talk about it thing. It's, you know, it's just taboo. Don't talk about it. It's too ugly and excruciating and terrible. And you're saying your God went through that? And Christian said, yeah, that's the essence of, of my faith. It, it's scandalous, like we just sang, but it's the essence. God coming to the world to that end, to die for me, and he loved us, and that's amazing. So, look from a distance. Gaze Grieve at the cross, but watch the cross. Follow Jesus there, but stand in awe of what he's doing, what he's given you and how little you can give him. Make him your king. Say with the centurion, who is not a very righteous person, right? It doesn't say that a very righteous person said, behold the Son of God. It says a centurion Gentile not looking for God. I just crucified the God of the universe guy who now says, behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not about being righteous. It's about being that type of guy. That type of guy. Those are the guys that get converted because they see their their messiness. That's what we are. (laughs) Everyone is anyway. But it's that type of guy. So say with a centurion, I'm a sinner. Truly, this is the Son of God. And believe. And like Jesus says, or John says actually about this in John 1.12, receive him. To as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Acknowledging facts and receiving, believing, trusting are very different things. They're both good, of course, biblically speaking, but if we don't come over here, um, we're no different, really, in one sense, than as James kind of gets at in James 2, I believe it is in the New Testament. We're not that different from the demons. Satan understands the concepts, right, of the gospel. Satan understands, the demons understand who God is. They profess Jesus as the Son of God, actually, right? In the Gospels, the demons do and so forth. So they understand the concept. What makes us different? Well, one, God became a human being, not an angel. So God became a human being to save human beings. So he's not saving fallen angels. He's saving human, fallen human beings like us. But two, we receive the idea. We say, we look at it and we say, I believe that's effectual to save me from my sin. I believe it actually does that. I actually believe the curtain tore. It did something in history. And I believe I'm different because of it. Demons don't do that. They, I mean, they can't anyway. They're, 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 fallen. they're angels, not human beings. But we say, God became like me. God became a human being, not a rock, plant, animal, or angel, a human being to die as one of us, like me. He gave his son. He loves me. 
So we look at it and we say, I'm receiving that into my life. I'm actively believing and trusting and jettisoning all other forms of religion and saying, no, he's the only way. And I'm putting faith and I'm all my eggs in that basket and I'm worshiping. That's what it means to, to cross the line in the sand and say, I'm, a, I'm becoming a Christian. I, I believe it's enough. It's sufficient to save me. In my sin, I come to that realization. Not clean, very, very, very messy, still sinning actually against him. That's what we do, right? Even as we profess Christ, we're still in some way rebelling, in some way hard-hearted, but he says, it's finished. It's on me, not on you. Watch me from a distance. Watch me from afar. Gaze at me. Receive me. Receive my love. And find a new identity as a child of mine in what I've done for you. All right, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, the gospel of Matthew 27 and the, the various angles on the one gospel that we get narratively. Uh, thank you for, yeah, again, all of them and telling us in all those ways that we're, we're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved, as we watch, we're saved as we watch from afar, not as we watch up close and not as we help you participate in saving work, but we watch you do everything. God, thank you for making a way open back to the Garden of Eden through the cherubim, through the curtain, through all the obstacles of sin and death, right back into, the, into your presence. God, you make that possible. But God, help us to believe that and to receive that. Not just understand the facts, but to, but to move off of that into a place where our, our lives revolve and orbit more around that idea, where it changes us. God, change us corporately, change us individually. And I pray that you'd soften our hearts to believe and trust and to tell a dying world more about this amazing God who came into our story, who came into our mess, came into our... Uh, our own history, and walked among us and died as one of us as a substitute. Praise be to God. Thank you for that we no longer have to fear our banishment from you, as one of our songs says that we sing here. We don't have to fear our banishment from God anymore. It's been, it's been taken on by someone else, uh, and that person is you. We love you. Help us to love you more, but really to be more about your love for us rather than our love for you, because our love is always spotty at best for you. So compel us to love through your love, but maybe be more about proclaiming, singing about your love than talking about how great our love is for you because it's just not that great. So thank you for loving lost people like us and help us to respond now. Amen. Amen. Yes, let's stand.